back. Mm. We're gonna we're covering mostly. We got a huge, huge bunch of uh, classic movies this week. A uh, couple of a couple of new things that we didn't get to last week that we'll uh, we'll uh, start off with here in a little bit. But um, you know, uh, just generally speaking, I I'm Deadpool doing well. Yeah. Uh, Avengers still just raking in gigantic amounts of cash. Probably going to wind up becoming the most successful film of all time. I think it looks two billion. It it, it could top Avatar. Yeah. It could top Avatar. I kind of want it to. Yeah. Just to just to. <laughs> deflate james cameron a little, a little bit. bit yeah uh because we need that mm. but uh yeah i uh it, 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 here's my question is the it, it, i'm still looking really forward to the new uh, the new ant-man uh, wasp ant-man wasp thing uh i think that looks like a lot of fun but are we gonna get anywhere near the end of of all this stuff what's, summer, you know what's funny this, i mean because the last six months from from black panther through Avengers, through to Deadpool, and looking toward Ant-Man, it just doesn't seem like this train is anywhere near stopping. I, I can remember very specifically looking at the, uh, the sort of grid of all of these movies in the Marvel Universe they, when they were laid out, when it sort of became obvious of what all they were going to do. Yeah. And then they and they started projecting the the, the dates and and this would have been uh, two thousand and fourteen yeah right and I remember looking at that night and, and seeing those release dates in two thousand and eighteen you yeah. know and thinking yeah. to myself seriously they think that they can drag this out to twenty eighteen you know what they're doing it yeah and I don't see they're any particular it. reason to stop you know yeah because because the, the you know they 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 make the money. Um, uh, on the other side, or on the other hand, I guess uh, Star Wars, uh, Solo, yeah. uh, that universe. Yeah, hmm. yeah. We had a we have a we have a great tomato slam up there on uh, cinegods.com. You should go check it out. Yeah, uh, which is uh, I more or less sums up all of our feelings. And uh, it, uh, you know, I mean, I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. Ray was more negative than anybody. Yeah. I think I'm a little bit more positive. You're kind of in between us. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they have. They certainly haven't figured out what what they figured out over in the Marvel universe. They haven't <laughs> were, done that. I think you were you were right when you said that the one problem is that uh, whatever you think of Alden Ehrenreich and Donald Glover, the way that they portray Han and, uh, yeah, uh, and, uh, and Lando, yeah. they're they're dicks. Yeah, <laughs> they're not really <laughs> likable. Like, these, these guys, I don't like these guys. Yeah. They were not likable young men. No, I'll put it that way. They're missing a certain uh, charm, certain kind of charm. You know, and, yeah, yeah, swagger. Ha Harrison had swagger. It's not that he didn't have swagger. Yeah, and same thing with um, same thing with Billy D. Williams. They had, yeah. you know, but somehow. You felt like at the end of the day, you know, I got your back. Yeah. Uh, but these two cats, it's like, no, I think you guys would shiv each other in a prison yard if you had yeah. a chance. Uh, anyway, well, what are you going to do? Well, let's let's dive into some of these uh, titles. we got a lot to cover this week. Uh, a couple of, a few new films still, just new to DVD things, just to kind of left over from last week. Um, this is an interesting movie called Davion, D-A-Y-V-E-O-N. Uh, this is an English language film, 76 minutes long, breezy, blows through like nobody's business. Oh, I love it. And a story of a 13-year-old kid named, right? It's nice when something's that short. Yeah. When you're on film week, let me just tell you something, folks. <laughs> when, when you're on film week, as, as Tim and I are, and you're you're loaded up and you're cramming because you know we do the we do the podcast we do a million other things too we're writing we're doing other things and film week comes on you like a grind and it's it's suddenly it's a Friday and you realize crap I got seven days to mm. somehow crunch 13, 14 movies 
and uh, you you start looking at running times. That's how you prioritize it them. It matters. It matters. You're yeah. like seventy five minutes. I could watch half of that while I'm fixing lunch. Yeah. And you and you budget your time accordingly, and you know you get your links, and it's it's just it's a it's a bit of a grind. It, it's a push. Because 145 minutes is a hard thing to find. <laughs> so it's cool. the filmmakers out there. If you want me to talk about your movies, well, keep them tight. That's like when when I had when I saw that we had the rundown was the uh, Long Strange Trip, the yeah. uh, Grateful Dead documentary, and I looked at that and I'm like, okay, I hate the Grateful Dead. And this thing is four hours long. <laughs> How the hell am I going to get through this? This is going to be like this is torture. I thought, okay, I'm going to I'm just going to budget one hour during lunch every day for four days, and I'll I'll squeeze through. And I, you know, I'm sitting there fixing myself a sandwich with the Long Strange Trip playing on my iPad. Next thing I know, it's four hours later, and I haven't even eaten my sandwich. That's how much how good that movie was. Wow. Uh, but anyway, so Davion is uh, is a 13 year old kid whose older brother is uh, is dead. And uh, it is it is a uh, it is a, a essentially a character driven piece. It reminds me a lot of George Washington in some respects. Oh uh, it, it yeah, has, it has it's that yeah. wonderful first film of it. Has, yeah. It has a certain kind of feel with that. It takes place in uh, in rural Arkansas, and uh, it, it takes some very very sad twists and turns, and uh, a little you know it, I won't tell you where it goes, but. It is uh it is a really really very a very skilled film. It's quite nicely done. This comes to us from Film Rise, who's doing a good job picking up some interesting stuff, and uh, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of promise in this movie. So uh, bravo to Aman Abbasi who directed it and co-wrote it with uh, Stephen Renault. Uh, I think there's some really good stuff in this movie. Davion D A Y V E O N and the incredible young actor Devin Blackman who plays Davion, 13 year old actor with a lot of skills. Good movie. Mm. Um, the Honor List, uh, which was a, actually a lovely little movie, uh, very, very moving. Feels like that was just in theaters. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These things have no windows anymore. Well, you know, which, which is kind of a shame because, yeah. you know, particularly if they do happen to be a lovely little movie like this one about these four young ladies. Um, and when they first start high school, they're just the best of friends. And yeah. then, you know, and they're all really different. Yeah, you know, sort of kind of you. all walks of life. <laughs> and fast forward. To their senior year, and they've uh, and they're not really uh, talking to each other anymore, and become different kinds of people, and and it's an interesting thing. And then one of them passes away. Uh, it's one of those moments, you know, and they all have to sort of like remember who they were back when and why they all became friends in the first place. And it's just a sweet little movie, uh, and I liked it quite a lot. Special feature: the creating of the honor list. Um, I would, I mean, seriously, this is a there's a wonderful series on television on uh, I think it's a Netflix series called Thirteen Reasons Why. Yep. Uh, kind of a yep. you know interesting the, the thing. about the, 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 yeah. this falls right into the zone with that kind of thing. Yeah. Very thoughtful about young ladies. Um, a night zero. Time is running out. I got to tell you, this this film is cocky. I'll give it that. Uh, so you, so you, again, you have a group of these friends, uh, and they get trapped inside of a house when there is like a sudden sort of like out of nowhere, sort of like Cloverfield sort of alien invasion. All right, that's a movie. (laughs) You got a movie right there. But you know what? Nah, not for these folks. (laughs) We're going to need to up this a little bit. (laughs) So the government creates a chemical to kill the aliens. But you know what the chemical does? It turns humans into zombies. So now you got yourself an alien invasion movie. That's really kind of funny. (laughs) I'm like, go for it, people. Go for it. Go for it. So what the hell? Uh, anyway, what the, that's kind of kind of nutty. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, nobody in this who you have ever heard of. But I'm sorry, the concept that's kind of fun. 
Yeah. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Um, oh, this is one of those neat little movies. I, I used to love movies back in the day. I think it was, it was, it was uh, Bob and Ke- uh, Ted and Carol. Bob and, and Carol Al- and Ted and Alice. Yeah, that was yeah. Paul Mazursky. Was that Mazursky yeah. back yeah. in the day? Uh, this is kind of neat like that. Uh, so anyway, this is about a young couple that's uh, having a little bit of trouble in the bedroom. And then they run into a, a, a couple of swingers uh, and add a little spice to your Ooh. relationship. Yeah, that's yeah. one of those kind of things. But you know... That's going to turn out badly. <laughs> because, you know, swinging always does. It's oh. called swing. It's, it, but it is kind of interesting and fun and a little bit sexy. Elizabeth McGovern in this movie. Haven't seen her in a while. Uh, but, you know, uh, kind of cool. All right. So here we are. That's it for our new movies. Now we're going we're gonna to take a deep dive into classic stuff. We've got a lot of really, really great stuff here. An unbelievable ton of stuff that recently come out from Warner Archive that we're uh, going gonna to highlight. Um, First, however, our new Criterions. What a mm. fascinating week for Criterions this is. So uh, Frank Borzaghi, who is one of the one of the big original big studio directors of the uh, the early sound era in the 30s and 40s, uh, Frank Borzaghi made a ton of great movies, and he isn't really remembered today no. in the same way that we remember Frank Capra or, or, or Michael Curtiz, WD, uh, DW, or, I mean, or, or W, yeah, uh, DW Griffith. So uh, anyway, Moonrise is a movie he made in 1948. And I don't know if I would call it necessarily his best film, but it's a really, really good film. And uh, it's kind of, it's, it's, uh, it's. I, I don't know if it's even the last film that he made. It might be the last film that he made because Borzegi doesn't didn't really. Move you have in. to be confused with Sunrise, the Murnau film now. Moonrise, yeah. not Sunrise. Yeah, this is Moonrise, yeah. not that's right, not Sunrise. Uh, but it's a, it, it's really a, it's a, it's a fascinating kind of quasi noir. And very, very interesting. Good cast. Dane Clark, Gail Russell, actors who, who don't, aren't really known anymore, but they're, they're, they're quite good. And um, it, uh, it, it, it takes some bizarre, really interesting twists. And they aren't typical noir twists. They are um, they're unusual psychological twists. And uh, then there's this really, really twisted, romantic uh, shift at one point. And uh, I, you don't see it coming, and it's, uh, and and you don't know where it's going, and it goes in a completely different direction. Yeah. And I know I'm being really, really uh, cryptic here, but I don't want to spoil this for anybody. It's cast, really... I mean, you got uh, Rex Ingram, uh, you know, one of the few yeah. sort of like major sort of like black yeah. actors. One uh, Woody Strode, you yeah, know, a few folks that is in that movie. Ethel Barrymore is in that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting cast, interesting movie. Yeah, comes from a 4K digital transfer uh, with uh, with an uncompressed mono soundtrack. Point that out. It is uncompressed mono, so it uh, it it has a real has a real nice quality to the to the audio. It's really rich. Uh, and there's a conversation between author Hervé Dumont, who wrote the uh, the biography of Borzegi. Uh, and uh, a film historian by the name of Peter Cowie, who has done a lot of stuff for Criterion over the years. So uh, not a ton of extras on here, but it's a really worthwhile film. And then uh, here's one that I want to just lavish praise on because it never really got it at the time. And Paul Schrader has just, Uh, you know, he just keeps doing like weird little indie after weird little indie. He's not really in the groove anymore. But back in 1985... Uh, there was a film in competition at the Cannes Film Festival right when I arrived. I arrived in, you know, when I, I lived in France, I arrived in 1985, uh, right around about April. Mm-hmm. And all the French magazines had, you know, uh, all their Cannes headlines, and Cannes was just a few weeks away. And Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, was in competition. Yeah. And the big deal of this was, it's a Paul Schrader film, 
but it's in Japanese with an all Japanese cast. And oh, by the way, it's produced by Coppola and George Lucas. Yeah. And I remember thinking, that just sounds like the most interesting thing in the world. I had no idea who Mishima was. So Mishima, of course, was a, uh, a legendary uh, Japanese novelist. But like most Japanese novelists, came with a whole lot of baggage. Yeah. And uh, Mishima's baggage was this. He was gay. Mm. He was militantly imperialistic and militaristic. Mm-hmm. I know you might think, how do those two things go together? Uh, in Japan, they apparently do. Yeah. And Mishima wrote a lot of really interesting novels, and then one day decided he was going to help restore the glory of Japan, and he and a bunch of his sort of paramilitary cohorts yeah. went and hijacked or took control of, seized control of a military academy. He went out to make a lecture to the cadets how they were going to now take control of the country. They were going to basically you know, stage a coup and take control of the country and return it to its imperial military glory, and the cadets laughed at him. Yeah. And he walked back in and he committed seppuku. Yeah. He killed himself. Yeah. Because he was so, it was the end. I mean, it's, it's very, very traditionally. That day, that entire episode that I just recounted is the subject of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and it is intercut with these really surrealistic, almost Alain Rene like stagings of scenes from his novels. It is, it is so interesting. This is one of the most... I don't know what where this Paul Schrader went because it is such a fascinating, compelling, unusual, original movie. Mm-hmm. It is gripping. Including all the, all the ways he chose to tell the story. It's I, so I, fascinating. It, it, the, the story is fascinating in and of itself. Uh, certainly at the time, what might have happened, even if uh, you know most American directors had gotten hold of it, they would have uh, transliterated it yes. into something equivalently American. Yes. Certainly, they wouldn't. Have, even if they did leave it in Japan, they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have uh, left it in the Japanese language. No, and cinematography is through the roof, thanks to John Bailey, who mm-hmm. is currently president of the Academy. Though I think there's a, something with the accusations of sexual yeah, harassment or something going on. Yeah. Anyway, John Bailey, he's a big bear of a man. He's the president of the Academy now. He was the DP at the time in '85. Tremendous work. Uh, Eiko Ishioka did the the sets and the costumes, and they are to die for, simply to die for. Um, this is a really fascinating movie, and Ken Ogata, who plays Mishima is just superb, absolutely superb. Um, really, really impressive. So uh, this movie comes in a in a custom box. It's not one of the it's not a regular keep case. It's a custom real, you know, it's just beautifully designed. It's shiny and gold and it's just great. Mishima, Life in Four Chapters by Paul Schrader. Gobs and gobs of extras on here, including, you know, uh, audio commentary from 2006 with Schrader and his producer. Uh, there are interviews and it, with, you know, uh, biographers and, you know, TV. It's just, I mean, it, it's there's no end to it. It's the usual stuff that you get from um, it's uh, the, the, the criterion. It's just their usual stuff. It's just absolutely great. And then... We also have three really rel- relatively recent films. Uh, one by Aki Karzmaki, the great uh, one of the two brothers in Finland who makes such fun, quirky movies. Uh, this is a really this is called The Other Side of Hope. This was made just last year, and it's really fun. Uh, it, it's very much about now. It's about two different people. One is a is a Finnish guy uh, who who is, his life's kind of falling apart, and he he's gonna you know start a restaurant. And uh, but it's not a very good idea. It's not a good business move. And he winds up coming into contact with this illegal immigrant Syrian guy who has kind of snuck his way into Finland and uh, isn't going to get asylum. 
And uh, it, with this, you know, this is kind of perfect Karzmaki stuff. It's two really quirky, unusual guys. And um, he just goes in all the usual directions and all the unpredictable directions that you would expect him to. Sherwan Haj, or Haji, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but Sherwan Haj, Haj or Haji is, uh, is the Syrian guy. And uh, Sakari Kusman, and I'm mutilating everybody's name today, is the, uh, is the, the salesman who, you know, thinks he's going to be a restaurateur. It's a fun film. It's really good stuff. And uh, there's a Berlin Film Festival uh, press conference footage on here and a video essay uh, that is really quite good as well. So um, a lot of fun stuff on this Aki Karzmaki movie, The Other Side of Hope. And then the last two are uh, new films, um, relatively new films. They're unseen films here, basically, for people who are fans of uh, Romanian director uh, Christian Munju. Uh, Christian Munju, M-U-N-G-I-U, is, of course, the uh, rather extraordinary director. And I'm not a fan of all Romanian directors. Uh, There's there's a lot of stuff there in the Romanian Uh, way that I'm not a fan of. Well, yeah, the depth of Mr. Lazarescu, I remember, because you and I disagreed about that that one from way back in the day. But Munju did uh, 432, four months, three weeks, and two days. About the abortion, yeah. Yeah, which is just so brutal. So these are two previous films of his. Um, uh, that nobody uh, here has probably really seen. Wrote and directed both of them. The oldest one is from uh, 2012, Beyond the Hills. And uh, it comes from, it's kind of inspired by a series of novels by a Romanian uh, novelist. And um, it takes place in a Romanian monastery and centers around this young nun and... uh, kind of the the existential slash spiritual crisis that uh, that nuns always seem to go through in movies although this one here is um it goes into some very very tough places i mean really it doesn't pull its punches it's not just sort of a lot of hand wringing and meditation it it has you know that same punch that you get out of 432 um quite quite good and uh the uh the two actresses here um, shared a Best Actress Prize at Cannes for this. And uh, why this film didn't actually get a, a more significant exposure here, I don't know. The other one is a more recent film from 2016. It's called Graduation. And uh, much in the same way, it just it just has that really, really pungent, dramatic sensibility that, uh, that Munju has better than anybody else. Mm. Uh, this also won an award at Cannes. And uh, it deals with uh, it's more it's more it's closer to four three two I think more generally, uh, but it takes a little bit more of a socio political tack on uh, what's happening in modern day Romania by looking at a a father and a daughter who is nearing the age where we would say she'd be graduating from high school in the United States, and we shouldn't uh, think that the pressures of college here with the high cost of college and, you know, the, uh, the SAT and the, all the different things you have to do to get into college and, you know, the limited slots. That, don't think that that is unique um, or that the subject of sexual assault is mm. specific to uh, the United States. It's not. And this film wrestles with all of that kind of stuff for the same in, – in, 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 in a European sense – and gives a, a much more interesting perspective on it. Uh, but it is it is a it is clearly dealing with issues that are global and cross cultural, and uh, it's really it's it's unbelievable power. It just it's his films just they're always a slow burn, right? Yeah. He sort of leads you down the garden path, and even even though I know that he's that guy, he's one of those guys. He starts to talking to you softly, mm. and by the end of the movie, he's screaming at you and he's punching you in the face and. 
I know it's going to happen, but he just gets me every time. Yeah. It's just, it's great stuff. It's so, a hell, of a, uh, hell of a performance. Man. Hell, of a, hell of a filmmaker and great actors. Uh, let's see. Um, I got an interesting thing. Mystery Science Theater 3000 presents the singles collection. So back in the day, um, some years ago now, when uh, this program first began, uh, it would put out these, and they started putting these out on DVD. They put them out as singles. Um, and uh, these are some of the first ones to, re- to be released on DVD. Um, but rather, and they were released, like I said, as individual uh, moments from the show or sometimes in jewel cases with two movies. Uh, so here they've kind of gathered all of those singles together. There have been many sets of Mystery Science Theater 3000, of course. But these days kind of put together neat movies um, um, uh, that uh, the show sort of built itself around uh, back in the day. So the films included include The Crawling Hand, uh, The Hellcats, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, which is just so great. E.G., I Accuse My Parents, and then there's a little uh, short films volume. Some bonus stuff on here as well. Uh, uh, including intros by Joel uh, Hodgson, Hodgson, and uh, it's you know about nine hours worth of material uh, on this collection. I love Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. What are you, you, know, you going to do? I uh, really do. Five classic episodes back in print. There you go. Yeah, nice. Uh, of unknown origin, I remember this movie, Peter Weller film. Um, uh, this movie had something in common with the old Michael uh, Ben. Remember Ben about the yeah. rats? Uh, that's that's yeah. it had something to do with that. Uh, this guy lives on the brownstone. Uh, he's so like with, with, with the Michael Jackson with the, song, exactly. With it, it creeps uh, me out. Uh, but this this place is infested by rats, and he gets into a whole thing of where he cannot stand these rats, and he's going to go after these rats. And the rats are like, "Dude, we're rats. You're going to lose." Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's pretty neat. Special features include, well, this is from a 2K scan of the inner positive, which is very, very nice, and some interviews with the executive producer and the screenwriter, Brian Taggart, and audio commentary with uh, the director, uh, George P. Cosmatos, who directed all kinds of neat movies back in the day. Uh, Peter Weller of Unknown Origin. Uh, I remember this movie, Richard Shankman, uh, the Papatus of Love. Oh yeah, him and John Cryer. Sure, uh, you know, kind of a kind of a you know, middle nineties uh, that was, and he and John Cryer actually did a few films together, and uh, and uh, you know, John Cryer went on to have his career, uh, and uh, and Richard went on to have his. Um, uh, it's really interesting stuff. This was a neat movie. Um, went to Coney Island on a mission from God back in five. Uh, it was it was it was it one was of those one long of those, titles that you remember. Yeah, because yeah. you know what are you, what are you, you going to do these the, these two guys, John Cryer and Rick Steer, and they go, uh, I only young Ioli Sky, young Frank Whaley, and these films. All these guys were sort of uh, interesting guys in the middle nineties making these movies. Uh, so anyway, this is a lovely sort of special collection from that film. It's about these two guys who, in fact, go to Coney Island to look for a third of their friends, like a guy that sort of like fell off the radar some years ago. It's really about alcoholism and. And, uh, and homelessness and things that are sort of relevant today. Um, um, so very interesting in that way. All kinds of neat special uh, features on this uh, Blu-ray. Um, and, and, uh, and it was upscanned to 1080p. Neat, neat stuff, including audio commentary from Richard Shankman, John Cryer, and uh, some of the other cool. some of films. Cool. Neat, neat movie. Still love John Cryer. Oh, yeah. He's, he's still on television. Yeah, um, so, uh, yeah, Savannah Smiles. I remember this movie from the early 80s. Lovely mm. little movie. 
uh, about a little girl uh, whose dad uh, is not paying enough attention to her. Yeah. Uh, so she runs away and she ends up hooking up with these two guys who are sort of bumbling uh, bank robbers yeah. or something goofy like that. And, and, and eventually it comes to look like they've kidnapped her. Uh, oh, they really haven't kidnapped her. They build this <laughs> sort of bond. A family, and it's just a neat movie um, uh, from from the early. They don't make movies like this anymore. It's like what's the, what's the uh, the O. Henry short story, the ransom of Red Chief. Oh yeah, or it's got, it sounds like yeah. It, it, I never saw it. I never saw Savannah Smiles. I always wanted to and. Cute little, movie. To it. Cute little movie. Uh, again, all kinds of great special features uh, on the film. They really put these packages together quite nicely from the MVD uh, Rewind Collection. Uh, they they offer all kinds of neat stuff on there. They they're really good prints. Uh, and uh, you know they make it more than just a movie watching experience, but it's kind of great if you've seen those movies before. Also from MVD, the return of the Swamp Thing, <laughs> the return of the Swamp Thing, uh, mind you. Swamp Thing was 1982. Return of the Swamp Thing uh, is a 1989 film. Swamp Thing, uh, Adrian Barbeau, Return of the Swamp Thing, Heather mm-hmm. Locklear. Nice. Uh, hey, you're doing good. Pretty good either way. Uh, Louis, uh, Louis Jordan in both films. Uh, Sarah Douglas in this one. Look, what are you going to do? You make a movie called Swamp Thing. It's hot and sexy and people like it. A couple of years later, you make one called The Return of the Swamp Thing because it'd be stupid not to. Um, uh, special features, again, uh, they really pack these full of really, really neat stuff, including that, that, that new high, that, that new 2K high-definition scan. Uh, and lots and lots of commentaries uh, with the director and Heather Locklear and all, all kinds of people. Neat. Return of the Swamp Thing. All right. I'm going to blow through uh, our Warner Archive massive pile right now. And uh, it is, it, there's just so much good stuff. You know, you can, you can see, thanks to the fact that now all of that Warner Archive stuff is, is, uh, has joined with Filmstruck. You mm. can see a lot of this on Filmstruck. But it, I still... A lot of these movies, you can only own them on DVD or on Blu-ray, and I do recommend it. It's just, it's still a great library. Uh, the first one is the Blu-ray release. All of these are DVD-Rs, uh, manufacture on demand, except this Blu-ray, it, they, they're very selective about the Blu-rays, and uh, 1949's Gun Crazy is such a seminal film. Before there was Bonnie and Clyde, before there was Badlands, before there was Natural Born Killers, before there was California, the Brad Pitt thing, Mm. Uh, before any of those lovers on the land, before Dirty Larry and Crazy Mary. I mean, yeah. we could go on and on and on. So many movies, lovers on the lamb. The, the the big granddaddy of them all is Gun Crazy from 1949, and what a great movie it is. Um, one of the most interesting noirs of the period. For the life of me, I don't know how this thing got through the code. Uh, I don't know how the censors re- didn't yeah. lose their minds at this thing because it has it's so there's so much sexual innuendo. The censors in the Hayes Commission, they must have been just complete cold fish yeah. to miss all this stuff. I mean, they meet at a carnival shooting competition. The whole thing is so unbelievably phallic in every conceivable way. <laughs> it's just, you, you got to be brain dead to look at it. You look at this now and you laugh. You're mm-hmm. like, they, you know, Joseph H. Lewis knew exactly what he was doing. Great noir director. This thing is so... It's so on the nose in so many ways, and yet it just, it, there it is. Uh, it's part of the National Film Registry. It deserves to be. It's a really great movie. It's beautifully transferred to, to Blu-ray. It's a really, really, I, I'm glad the elements have survived so well because it was, uh, you know, that's one of those movies that did drive-ins for quite a long time, too, and yeah. uh, it's just terrific. Gun Crazy. 
Uh, got some stuff from the uh, Samuel Goldwyn collection, which is still also part of the Warner archive. Uh, Woman Chases Man is a fun screwball comedy from the late 1930s, 1937, uh, with Miriam Hopkins and Joel McRae, who are just so, so fun. Miriam Hopkins just is always great. I love her in just about anything that she ever did. Uh, and, uh, you know, as many movies in the 30s were, this centers a lot on money and people who, you know, inherit wealth and lose wealth. And um, it, there's, a, you know, there's even some kind of post-prohibition uh, stuff going on here, too. So it's very much kind of tapping into the zeitgeist of the day. But um, it, 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 it's really, it's very, very, very fun. And uh, as, a, as a romantic comedy, it's probably one of the better screwballs of that late 30s period. Woman Chases Man. Uh, just wonderful, wonderful work from everybody involved. Um, a couple with Ronald Coleman here. My father was a huge fan of Ronald Coleman, thought he was the best actor of his generation, and very much in the in the school that my father uh, taught. And uh, when I look at these old movies, I, I get it. You know, Coleman was kind of a minimalist and a very subtle <coughs> actor of a, of a style of acting that you just didn't find among other actors of the day. Wesley Ruggles directs him in 1929's Condemned. This is... So, so, like, right there, early sound, barely at the end of the silent era. Um, it's, uh, you know, this is a very, very kind of a raw film in many respects. But, um, you know, the, the, every, any, until you get to about 1931, everything is still kind of a work in progress. Mm -hmm. 27 with the jazz singer, which is mostly silent. And then 1931, by which time everything is sound. Um, between there, everything is kind of experimental. And Coleman is one of those guys who's part of this era when you're, you're moving from one to the other. And um, he's doing something as an actor that others just simply don't do. And um, here it's kind of a Les Miserables thing. Uh, he plays a, a thief um, and uh, has a certain kind of an existential journey that that's tied into. Uh, I, it's, it, you, you kind of have to see it. This is part of his transition to, from, from one to the other. Um, the more interesting film by far, too, is To Devil, The Devil to Play. Sorry, The Devil to Play, another Samuel Goldwyn film, which is where Ronald Coleman was doing all of his work at the time. This was made the following year in 1930, and uh, co-stars Loretta Young and Myrna Loy, and uh, directed by George Fitzmaurice, and I don't know, or Fitzmaurice, whichever it is, I know nothing else of his, his work. Mm. So I, uh, I'm tempted to go and look up a little bit of it. But um, this is another you know, movie about somebody who's got an inherited fortune and loses it. And uh, in this case, he, you know, has, he goes from uh, being kind of a, an Indiana Jones type explorer slash playboy and returns to England. And uh, there's a bit of a romance with an actress and, um, you know, eventually kind of a, a, a redemption in this. But it, it's, it's, a, it's one of those, it's very much a movie of its era. But what, again, what Coleman is doing is, with his acting is so far ahead of his time mm. and so unusual relative to everybody, everything else at the time. Uh, Espionage Agent with Joel McRae again. And this was a Warner Brothers film, a straight-up Warner Brothers film from 1939, a year when uh, movies like this just didn't get any attention because Gone with the Wind and Gone, Mr. Smith and Wizard of Oz and mm. Gunga Din and all the other great movies made that year were, uh, were sucking up all of the air. But the propaganda movies are so interesting and really worth rediscovering, and Warner Brothers was making so many of them at the time. 
Uh, th- and this is one of the best of those propaganda films. So Joel McRae plays a, uh, a guy in the State Department and, who kind of segues into um, doing a whole lot of really, really s- sketchy spying. Even if the United States isn't in the war, he's out there. He's you know, going to take one to Hitler. And um, then he discovers in true Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie fashion, that his wife could be working for the other side. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it, it uh, you know, we've, we've kind of seen this spy versus spy in the family thing many times before. And this is the, uh, this is, I think it might be the first one that actually uh, works off that theme. But anyway, it, uh, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. It transcends its genre. It's, it's quite good. Uh, let me hit. A, I'll, I'll hit just a more? couple. A couple others here, and then I'll let you uh, get get uh, get on that, and then we'll return to the Warner Archive stuff. The Lost Squadron with Richard Dix and Mary Astor. Uh, I actually know Mary Astor's family quite well. Grew up with a couple of the uh, of her grandkids. Um, uh, anyway, the Lost Squadron. Richard Dix. It's just uh, Eric von Stroheim is in this as well as is Joel McRae in a in a smaller supporting part. This is an RKO film from uh, 1932, early sound era, really. Uh, just a pretty much a straight up World War One uh, pilot movie, you know, more of that, more of that stuff that you got in Wings. Except now it's a sound movie. Got the Red Baron, uh, you know, played by uh, Eric von Stroheim, who looks nothing like the Red Baron. But you know what? It's a, it's still, it's really well done. It ain't CG. And if you like all of that real flying stuff in Wings, you're gonna love it here because yeah. it's, it's actually even better in many respects. And then this one is historic, Lights of New York. You need to know this movie. Why? Because it's the first all-talking picture. We talk about the, the jazz singer. The jazz singer only had sound for the songs. It was otherwise a silent movie. Lights of New York is all-talking. It is the first wall-to-wall sound film directed by Brian Foy. The following year, 1928, Warner Brothers. And um, is it good not particularly but it doesn't matter it's historic so you got to see it uh you have to see what the first all talking movie was like and have fun figuring out where the microphone was and how they staged it so that they would you know have the microphone would pick it up and and all of the technical challenges of making an all talking picture are right here and you can see it and it is so much fun to actually kind of get inside the film and behind it it's really it, it's quite good um in that regard it, as a movie, not very good, but it's it's a technical experiment. It's a it's a stepping stone. It's mm-hmm. like a, you know, it's like a Model T in many respects. It's something that had to happen so other things could happen, and it's really worth checking out. Uh, Hugh Herbert, uh, you know, uh, and um, and Murray Roth wrote the story. These guys are names that mean absolutely nothing to me. Uh, the actors I don't really recognize: Colin Landis, Eugene Pallet. I mean, you know, Helen mm. Costello. I don't recognize anybody in this thing. So um, I don't know if they really brought the A team. I think they kind of threw a lot of people under the bus and just said, "You people aren't really doing much here. Let's see what let's see what you can make out of an all talking picture." So anyway, uh, Lights of New York. I would recommend it just for the historical value alone. Uh, I, I, I'm so glad I get to talk about this one. Yeah, uh, I remember going to see this movie. It's the 40th anniversary. Thank God it's Friday. <laughs> it's so good. I remember. I knew you'd enjoy that. Oh, we went to see this movie on opening day. This movie in Car Wash, which I think it was a couple of years yeah. early, maybe 76 or something yeah. like that. Were like these two huge movies 
it, at the time, it sort of centered around disco and disco dancing and the, and the whole scene and all of that, obviously, along with Saturday Night uh, uh, Fever. Uh, Fever. Yeah. Uh, uh, but this was one of them, and it was huge. Robert, uh, Robert Klain directed this film. He didn't direct too many films. Um, uh, this he wrote a whole bunch of movies. Oh, just all kinds of stuff. But what's neat about this movie are the people. Is it's about a club. Thank God it's Friday. Friday night. These two young girls who are actually too young to get into the club decide to go to the club. Terry Nunn being one of them. Beverly Hills' own Terry Nunn being one of them. They decide to go to this club uh, and get in there. Jeff Goldblum is this sort of like sleazy disco guy. I mean, it's just all so wonderful. The Commodores show up in this movie. Otis Day shows up in this movie. Uh, a good friend of mine's. Uh, who I didn't meet, uh, interestingly, until after I moved to Los Angeles, you know, almost 20 years later, uh, Ray Vitti, who played Bobby Speed in the movie, the disc jockey who said that he could get the Commodores sure. there. They, you know, and I, you, it's funny. You come to L.A., you're working around, you meet this guy, and you're like, that's the guy from <laughs> Thank God it's Friday. Um, uh, really, really neat film. 1978 Academy Award winner for Best Original Song, Last Dance. What are you going to do? Love I it. still remember the TV commercials for that thing. I wanted to go see that so badly. It looked like so much fun. Donna oh, yeah. Summer. It just, the, 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 everything looks, I thought, that movie looks like a blast. I got to go see that. And it was. Yeah, it was yeah. great. It was Rob, Huge produced fun. Produced by Rob Cohen. Neat stuff. Uh, what do you got? I uh, got a couple here, Warner Archive, with titles that just don't mean the same thing today that they did then. And that makes it all the more fun. The Gay Bride and the Hot Heiress. <laughs> Uh, you know, I love how titles just change over time. Yeah, words. Uh, they, what words? What words can do? Uh, so Zezu Pitts is the star of the Gay Bride, along with Carol Lombard and Chester Morris. My father was always also always a big fan of Zezu Pitts, mm. largely because she had that name. But basically, it's a Carol Lombard movie. Uh, and Carol, Carol Lombard is just gorgeous and so funny. And people this forget is, that she was really a comedian. We always saw the oh lump her in with the sort of sex pots. She, she was a comedian. She is hysterically funny, and this is really, really good. This is a uh, this is kind of a caper comedy. It's a screwball comedy. It's a romantic comedy. It's a caper comedy. It's all of those things all kind of tucked together. And so many movies from this this era as well. And uh, here we're talking 1934. You know, you're still you're still Depression era, basically. And so many of these movies, again, are dealing with people who inherit money and lose money. And money is always a real big mover here. And, and very often women who are gold diggers. Yeah. You know, they made gold <laughs> diggers of 33 and 35 and 37. Of course, you all... have to remember we're coming out of the Depression Yes, uh, at, at that time. So these these are anyway. And they're the con always context is everything. And they're they're always these women who are you know looking to exploit their feminine wiles to try to get some money, and uh, that's exactly what Carol Lombard does here. She is. And you know just, what, Carol, that would have worked on me. Man, it would have worked, and I'm so I got baby. You so root for her. She's a she's a showgirl, and she wants to just pull off the big the big marriage deal. And, uh, you know, of course, the guy is naturally a mob boss because they're the only ones that had money at the time. But it's, uh, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, it, it's some really clever farcical stuff in here. It's really, it's just, it, you'll have a lot of fun with it. It's really worth checking out. Jack Conway directed. It's a great cast. And then The Hot Heiress, um, not exactly what you would imagine it to be. Uh, this was a first national picture from 1931. Again, very early sound era. With some great songs by uh, Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart, the uh, the team otherwise known as Rogers and Hart, 
and uh, it's it's quite fun. Uh, ben Lyon, Walter Pigeon, very very young Walter Pigeon, we should point out, and Ona Munson are the cast. And uh, you know the musicals from this period were a little bit static, a little staid. They're not musicals as we've come to know them. They're no still Busby Berkeley. No, they haven't gotten to that point yet. They're still trying to uh, trying to sort of figure out how to make music on in movies be as interesting as music on the stage. And they're not quite figuring it out, but the songs are good. And uh, the story is basically, you know, a, 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 an inside-out Cinderella story. So it's, uh, it's, it's worth giving a look. As a depression, understanding at the beginning, it has that all those Depression-era uh, aspects to it. It's a lot of fun. So it's well worth checking out. Uh, I got a couple of sets here, a couple of collections uh, on Blu-ray. Um, who are these from? Are these from? Oh, it's all Mill this Creek. Is from Mill Creek stuff. That's Mill right? Creek. Yeah. So Charlie Bronson move, uh, four movie collection: The Vici Papers, Kill, the, the Stone Killer, Breakout, and Hard Times. Uh, again, love all of these movies. You know what's interesting? Of those movies uh, that I just mentioned, uh, Vici Papers, The Stone Killer, Breakout, Hard Times, all Charlie Bronson movies. We think about Charlie Bronson, Charles Bronson. Uh, in these movies, uh, except for the Stone Killer, they're all PG. Yeah, the Stone Killer is the only one that's rated R. Isn't that crazy? Charlie, yeah, 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 yeah. Hard time sort of work like working it out in my head, but it's a fact. Uh, these were all pretty good movies too, by the way. I I, I saw the uh, Vlachi Papers, I should say, uh, just the other day, uh, uh, on on television, and that still plays pretty good. Charlie Bronson. Um, you know what also runs on uh, has been running on television lately that uh, a series that Charles did in like maybe the early '60s, Man with a Camera. You ever oh, see yeah. that that black and white yeah, series? Yeah. You know, which I had not seen yeah. before, but it runs all the time. That's kind of where he got his start on television, doing yeah. that, doing that thing. A lot yeah. of those guys did. Yeah, crazy. We forget, you know, yeah. that a lot of those guys started on television. Um, another uh, drama, four in one collection, all starring John Travolta. Uh, let's see. Let's go. Let's go back to the beginning. The first one would be perfect. John Travolta with the wonderful Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, the second one would be let's see, basic opposite uh, Samuel Jackson. Then Lonely Hearts, uh, pretty neat movie actually. I remember that one. Uh, young, not youngish, younger James Gambolfini in that movie. Uh, and a love song for Bobby Long, which gave us a fairly young Scarlett Johansson opposite uh, uh, John Travolta and all that sort of white makeup. So, you know, these movies sort of like bounce around a bit uh, through uh, John Tra Travolta's career, but you can see a lot of neat, interesting people. Jared Leto in one of these movies, Salma Hayek in one of these movies. Uh, as I said, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Scarlett Johansson in one of these movies. And uh, Samuel Jackson, Connie Nielsen, and Giovanni Rublisi, who I forgot was in Basic. Yeah, I did yep. too. And we got five more to wrap out the Warner Archive titles. Two period films right here, uh, separated by a decade, 1931 and 1941. The 1931 is uh, George Arliss as Alexander Hamilton in the movie Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> which, of course, is a story that's much more popular now, thanks to the musical, which has popularized the story all over again. Uh, a lot of key differences here. This is uh, very straight, very much of the, the early sound era. Very kind of uh, stodgy and a lot of historical liberties taken here. Um, you know, George Arliss was on uh, is is not really what Alexander Hamilton was like, but he was a he was you know a contract actor at Warner Brothers, so 
this was something that kind of gave him some work to do. You mean he uh, wasn't a Puerto Rican guy? Yeah. No. <laughs> well, like, the Puerto Rican guy is probably closer to the truth than George <laughs> yeah, Arliss actually, is. That's what I think about it. Yeah, it is a lot, a lot closer. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of myth-making here, a little bit l- substantially less history than really uh, should be here, but still very, very entertaining, uh, directed by another guy who was a contract director, John Adolfi at the time. Uh, and uh, it's it's you know based on a play that George Arliss presumably co-wrote, so I I'm not familiar with the play, can't really speak to the play or how much of uh, the play winds up in the movie, but it's very much an Arliss vehicle. Uh, the Prime Minister from 1941, much more polished film. You you realize how much. Uh, filmmaking developed in just 10 years when mm. you get to this. The style, the camera work, the sound work, it's all much more polished. And uh, in this case, you have John Gilgood playing Benjamin Disraeli, the uh, the famous uh, prime British prime minister. And uh, the stories of Disraeli are very, very interesting. Uh, the, the, the reason this film was made in 1941 was because World War II is on and Winston Churchill is in the news and a lot of people saw parallels to the story of ch- what Churchill was doing vis-a-vis Hitler mm-hmm. and what Disraeli was doing uh, some decades earlier. Uh, and they wanted to, you know, Warner Brothers again being super anti-Hitler and n- being unafraid to sort of jump into the propaganda film mm-hmm. uh, business before other studios. They wanted to draw parallels in history and hopefully inspire people. And uh, Gilgood is great. He's really good. He's super young, but he's so, so good. And um, it's a very, very interesting film. And then the last three, A Notorious Affair, which is uh, kind of middling. Uh, this was a First National and Vitaphone film from uh, 1930. It's very raw. Again, you know, technically very, very raw relative to what becomes much more polished even just, a, just two or three years later. Um, it's based on a play like so many of them were. It's worth watching mainly because Basil Rathbone and Kay Francis are such good actors, yeah. even in something that's kind of, um, you know, it's another one of these, you know, wealth-oriented, heiress-oriented, uh, depression-era cautionary tales. Um, but uh, they're very good in it. It's directed by Lloyd Bacon, who also was a contract director for Warner Brothers at the time, who did, you know, uh, Gold Diggers movies and others as well. So it's okay. Uh, the last two, really, really terrific. Barbara Stanwyck in A Lost Lady. Barbara Stanwyck is just one of those amazing performers who can do no wrong. This is a very early Barbara Stanwyck role from 1934, um, along with Frank Morgan and Lyle Tabbitt and some other really, really fine actors, directed by the very good Alfred E. Green, who was a really, really solid uh, workaday director. And, um, you know, Barbara Stanwyck plays a, plays a, a socialite whose life goes south for a horrible, unexpected reason. And how she is able to sort of rebuild her life um, thanks to a number of interesting twists of fate and some very, very nice locations and, uh, and, and photography. Um, it's, a, it's a melodrama, but it's a good one, and she's great in it. And then lastly, the terrific Joe E. Brown, who most people yeah. know is the guy who utters the famous final line in uh, Some Like It Hot. Uh, Joe E. Brown before that was just an outrageously funny guy. This is 1932. He is definitely forming his uh, his screen persona. This, again, is directed by Lloyd Bacon. And uh, the movie is called Fireman Save My Child. And it's just a, it's a classic Joey Brown comedy. You know, he's one of those guys that came out of vaudeville. He's kind of like a second or third tier uh, Buster Keaton yeah. in a lot of respects. Yeah. Similar kind of a face, similar sense of comedy. But he was able to pick up in the sound era where Keaton couldn't necessarily. 
And, um, you know, he uh, it's great. He plays a plays a firefighter and a baseball player. And uh, he just he he, somehow this dumb, silly, ridiculous story, uh, which makes no sense at all, gives him so many chances to be funny that you just forgive the fact that none of it makes sense. It's, you know, in a way, he was almost like the Adam Sandler of his day, too. So Joey Brown and Fireman Save My Child. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I have got uh, going back to the whole milk. Creek uh, collection over here, the William Castle Western collection. William Castle, of course, we we think about William Castle, we think about House on Haunted Hill. Yeah. We, we might even think about Rosemary's Baby. Some people forget that he was a producer on Rosemary's Baby. That's but, right. But certainly all, all those sort of gimmick films and things that he would do uh, to attract audiences, offering insurance policies and tinglers and, <laughs> and, <laughs> all and all that, that kind of stuff. But he directed a whole lot of Westerns, some of them pretty good. Yeah. Uh, he was a very, he was, he was, he was a, Prolific guy, um, 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 uh, Mr. Mr. Castle, who started his career in New York before he came to L.A. Um, among them are eight uh, of what they are calling classic legendary films from William Castle, uh, including Klondike Kate, uh, which is only a 64-minute film starring Tom Neal and Glenda Farrell, uh, pretty neat. Uh, Conquest of Cochise, Robert Slack, John Hodiak, and uh, and Joy Page. Seventy one minutes. It's a, yeah, there's a there's a theme here with Bill's films because he was known known as being frugal and getting it done, uh, making these movies quick and fast. He also made them to play quick and fast. Uh, Masterson of Kansas, seventy three minutes. Nancy Gates and Gregory Montgomery. Jesse James versus the Daltons. Eight, uh, 65 minutes, Barbara Lawrence and Brett King. Battle of the Rogue River, George Montgomery again, Richard Denning, Martha Heyer, 71 minutes. Uh, the Gun That Won the West. Dennis Morgan, I actually particularly like this movie. Dennis Morgan, Paula Raymond, and Richard Denning again. That movie is only 70 minutes. These are all Columbia pictures too, by the way, folks. Yeah. These are Columbia pictures. Movie's only 70 minutes long. Duel on the Mississippi. Lex Barker, Patricia Medina, uh, Warren Stevens, 72 minutes, and Uranium Boom. Dennis Morgan, Patricia, the, the same cast more or less. Uh, uh, the movie is 68 minutes long, directed by William Castle. Man, oh man, oh man. If only we could do that again today. Yeah. So I got a couple here from Flickr Alley. So awesome. Okay, these are the 1950s. The widescreen era has officially launched. Now, Flickr Alley has released on Blu-ray some Cinerama stuff in the past. These have both been out before. They're being re-released. Just so you understand the the the, the history here. Cinerama was the was a format. The first, it was the widescreen format that initially, and it, it changed a little bit later, but it initially was three cameras side by side with three panels that when married together on a curved screen gave you this incredibly wide image. This is how we're competing with television. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds crazy. It was crazy. And somehow it was the th- it was like the, the, the 3D of its day. And um, this is Cinerama was the avatar of its day. This was like, you know, there's no reason to go see this as Cinerama other than the technical gimmick of it. Mm-hmm. It's just a travel log. It's just saying, look what we can do. Yeah. It's a reel. Yeah. That's all it is. It's 127 minutes of look what we can do with this camera and technology. And the notion being, of course, uh, to get you hooked on this, to get you interested in this, so that we will make movies this way. Yeah. And then you will, you know, but no, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And and the movies that were made in Cinerama, there's a, they, they changed the format later to be more like other widescreen technologies that were competing with it. But here's the thing. Uh, here's what's interesting here. They, so this is a new 2017 restoration from original three-panel camera elements. They restored this from the original elements. They look phenomenal. 
There are tons of bonus materials here, including an audio commentary with John Siddig from Cinerama and David Stromeyer, uh, who's a, a restoration archivist, and uh, Randy Gitch, who's a Cinerama historian. Uh, and then G this guy, Jim Morrison, who was originally on the crew of the film, amazingly. Uh, they've got docu uh, documentaries and featurettes, and there's an alternate opening for the um, uh, European segment. And uh, it just, it's, it's the stuff here, it's a real, it's a film school in this format. And, uh, you know, it's just a world travel log otherwise. But what's really, I, I guess, like a, like those uh, Godfrey Reggio movies, ah, you yeah. know, Koyana Scotsi and all that. There's probably a little bit of that you could say in this too. But here's the thing. They, this is done with the smile box technology. So they're letterboxing it. It, to recreate the curved screen impression. Oh, okay. Now, it's going to look weird if you're looking at this on your 27-inch television. It's going to drive you crazy. It's going to have a slightly concave. It's going to have, convex. like, divots in the top and yeah. bottom. If you're looking at this on a 70-inch television and you're sitting, I don't know, four feet from the television, it's awesome. Okay. It feels it feels exactly like you, you're sitting you're in the Cinerama Dome. Turn the lights out. Get it as dark as possible. It's a cool feeling. If you have a curved television screen, mm. it's kind of weird. Mm. It doesn't it doesn't quite work. So um, that that it doesn't. The other film here is Windjammer, which is part of the uh, the Cinerama series. But here's the thing about Windjammer, which is a it's a boating movie, right? Windjammer: The Voyage of the Christian Radich. It's a you know a sailing movie. Windjammer was not a Cinerama movie. Windjammer was shot in the Cinemiracle process, which was a competing process. And apparently the only film done so, uh, which was sponsored by National Theaters that was trying to, you know, uh, push back a little bit against Cinerama and being the, uh, the exclusive new widescreen format. Uh, this is from 1958, six years after this is Cinerama. And this also was restored from the original camera elements. And uh, you know what? It's a, it's a better movie than I ever gave it credit for at the time. It's, a, it's about a, you know, a boat trip that goes from Oslo uh, all the way across the Atlantic. And you know, it's, a, it's an ocean travel log. But um, it's, it, it's much more interesting. It's not quite Contiki, you know, mm. uh, but it's like an early version of Contiki. And uh, the only shortcoming is that it's longer than it needs to be. It's almost two and a half hours long, which is way too long. But again... Tons of uh, bonus materials getting into the uh, the technology and how the film was made and its trailer, and it's all very, very interesting. So uh, hats off to, uh, to Flickr Alley for both of those. Mm. Uh, back to Mill Creek for just a second. This is sort of a really neat uh, box set, big, a big box of uh, kids' favorites. It's what it is. Johnny Tess, Paddington Bear, Hey Vern, It's Ernest. <laughs> I actually watched that show, uh, which sort of fell into that sort of like Pee Wee's Playhouse-y sort of uh, vein of, of things, that, that character that uh, he created, Ernest P. Worrell. Um, uh, Paddington Bear, of course, is Paddington Bear. Can't go wrong there. And uh, Johnny Tess, just over 25 hours a worth of programming on this uh, 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 three-disc collection. Um, you get the first two seasons of Johnny Test. Uh, the Paddington Bear collection has a little bit more than that, and the complete Hey Vern, It's Ernest series right here. Um, uh, rated G, Y, and Y7 across the board there. American Patriots, the documentary collection. This is really just a beautiful collection that Milk Creek put together, um, sort of chronicling uh, the achievements of, of, of many of our 
of, of many of the heroes of our military that don't always get a, a lot of credit. So, for instance, the first one is about, unsung heroes is about women in the military, uh, going all the way back to the days of the Civil War, uh, coming right up through Afghanistan, and you know, the, the, I suppose it's currently uh, as as uh, the wars that were going on in 2014 when this movie was made. But it's that that particular one is all about women. It's quite extraordinary. Names that you don't know. Uh, of women who did absolutely inspiring things, uh, uh, perseverance and triumph all over the place. The Medal of Honor, or Medal of Honor, which was a six-part series uh, that, that chronicles uh, the Medal of Honor, uh, the highest award uh, um, uh, given to our military service people uh, who do extraordinary things. This goes all the way back again to the uh, Civil War and works its way right up through our current uh, conflicts, uh, chronicling these people, telling you who they are and what they did. And uh, for Love of Liberty, this is a particularly uh, interesting one for me as it features Morgan Freeman and, Hall and Halle Berry and uh, General Colin Powell. This uncovers many of the stories of our nation's uh, African-American heroes, men and women. Uh, again, uh, the pivotal roles that they played going all the way back to the, to the uh, Revolutionary War, up through the Civil War, uh, uh, right through the current day. Uh, and and I, obviously it documents some of the injustice, injustices uh, that these uh, African-American women and men went through when they happened to be fighting Vietnam. Uh, again, just things that we don't always always see when we, uh, when we look at our, our heroes. Uh, really, really, really good set from Mill Creek. And uh, we got a whole lot from Kino and uh, some other fun – and one other fun title. It's not Kino, but it's going to get included in the Kino stuff. Um, let me make mention of Four Silence from Kino this week that uh, that I am particularly fond of. And, uh, I, you know, we've been – we have a thing at our house that we're doing now so that our daughter does not uh, grow up with an aversion to black and white movies like so many people who think it's black and white. Why isn't it even color? Uh, we are watching black and white movies every Friday evening. That's the thing. Every Friday, Friday evening, we, we watch a black and white movie. We expose my daughter to a black and white movie. She's five. And uh, that way she will learn a big chunk of film history and appreciate why black and white movies are great. And so we, we have actually watched Sunset Boulevard two weeks running. Some people might think you're exposing a five-year-old to Sunset Boulevard. Yep, it's pretty great. It's a good movie for a five-year-old to watch. Uh, and Gloria Swanson is so remarkable. And that's the movie for which she is still primarily known. Um, but, of course, she was a silent film star and a quite an extraordinary silent film actress. And uh, that you see not only in that film, but in the films that are in the film, which are... Uh, uh, which are, you know, that's part of the self-referential nature of it. We have a couple of amazing Gloria Swanson movies right here, and uh, it, you just it, you just cannot believe how great they are. Um, one is called Stage Struck, directed by the great Alan Dwan, who would go on to do a lot of uh, a lot of uh, kind of adventure movies and B movies uh, in the sound era. This is from 1925, and um, it includes an audio commentary from Alan Dwan's biographer, Frederick Lombardi, that is unbelievably filled with information that I didn't know. Really interesting. This is uh, taken from the original 35-millimeter uh, elements that are pre preserved at the George Eastman Museum in New York, and it includes two-strip technicolor prologue and epilogue, which I also didn't know uh, was, on, was ever originally shot. Uh, so this is kind of a revelation. 
this is uh, really an extraordinary movie, and uh, one of the one of the great sound films of that late uh, silent films of the late silent era. And Gloria Swanson is terrific. Even better is Manhandled, which again is a collaboration with Alan Dwan from the previous year and uh, is incredibly funny. It is really, really quite funny, and you realize how, how terrifically uh, hilarious Gloria Swanson could be. Uh, she plays a, a sales girl here who's uh, uh, pretending to be a Russian countess in order to kind of climb the social ladder. And it's just, it's a hoot, and it's wonderful, and it's charming, and it's beautifully done. And I think better than uh, just about anything Alan Dwan did in the sound era. It is really terrific. Um, has a commentary by a film historian and an essay by another film historian, and a wonderful film, uh, a wonderful piano score composed and performed by Makia Matsumura, which is just delightful. This was uh, restored f- uh, in 2K from 16 millimeter elements that Lobster Films uh, preserved, so it doesn't look as good as Stage Struck, but it still looks awfully good, and it's really worth taking a look at. The other two silents are uh, Douglas Fairbanks in The Half-Breed, again directed by Alan Dwan, which includes another feature, The Good Bad Man, from 1916. Uh, the, uh, the Half-Breed is, is also from 1916, so we're in a, in a much more rugged, silent period. Um, and the subject of this is what makes it interesting. It's a, it's a Western, and it's wrestling with um, a lot of ethnic issues that that sound films would be afraid of later on mm-hmm. the idea of being mixed race yeah. mixed heritage in this case you know uh, part native american and uh, you think about that and you think well wow what you know that's a pretty bold film to make it that oh i see it was written by anita luce ah and you see female screenwriters in the silent era yeah. like to push buttons yeah. because they all knew and Anita Luce was one of the best of them. Anita Luce's films were all really, really aggressive because they, this is the suffrage era. These are, these are women who understand that they are fortunate to have po- poked holes in you know, this patriarchal culture where they now have an opportunity to say something. Yeah. And uh, that's why... And, and sometimes we do forget that at the beginning of the film uh, industry, yeah, women were doing these things. Yep, we forget about Alice Guy Blachet. Yeah, we forget about all, all, there, there were lots of women directing. Yep, scenario writers. Yeah, uh, coming out of theater and and you know a thing happened and men figured out where the power lay and they were like, oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we, we let the girl and then they sort of took that power back. But these women were there doing these things quite amazingly. Yeah. And the last one here, speaking of women in the film business, the uh, most notorious of them, Leni Riefenstahl, yeah. uh, did The Holy Mountain as an actress. And, uh, you know, the writer-director of this was Arnold Funk, who made all of these mountain movies with Leni Riefenstahl as an actress before she became a filmmaker in her yeah. own right. And uh, these movies are important to see. However you feel about Leni Riefenstahl and Triumph of the Will and all of that stuff, it, it, for the same reason, it's important to see Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith. You, these, these are part of film history. You can't ignore these things. You need to know that they exist and understand their their relevance in, in context. And the Lenny Riefenstahl mountain films, she is put up as this Aryan goddess, basically. This is what we expect our women to be. You know, There's very much a propaganda element to these movies. Uh, already at this time, and this is 1926. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is not this is not yet Hitler era. No. This is Weimar cinema, but you can still feel a certain sensibility in the country that is aspiring to something that Hitler took advantage of, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's it, this is a really interesting movie. 
she her acting i you know whatever i, I never thought much of lenny riefenstahl as an actress i, I she think was much physical more of her a, she was physical she was dynamic was she would leap from ice uh, yeah. flows to a yeah. thing she was she would do it she yeah. was uh i don't know who, who who the equivalent of her today would be but as a sort of dramatic actress not, no not so not, much not so much yeah. but anyway there's a great commentary on this by film historian travis crawford that puts everything into context and uh, it looks gorgeous. I mean, the restoration of this, 2K restoration, is absolutely tremendous, 1926. Uh, there's also interview footage with Lenny Riefenstahl and her co-star that was uh, taken from the documentary The Wonderful, Horrible Life of Lenny Riefenstahl, which I also highly, highly recommend. I hope that comes out on Blu-ray at some point. It's a three-hour documentary, but it's tremendous. Uh, I've got this lovely sort of uh, collection. It's called the Legacy Collection, Gentlemen Changemakers in America. It's basically three separate documentaries about three very important figures uh, in American history. The first being uh, Martin Luther King, March to Freedom, um, which is really uh, not so much about Martin Luther King as it is the struggle for civil rights and yeah. you know, freedom itself over the course of the entire 400 years, uh, beginning with African-American slaves right through through. Uh, the civil rights movement, with, with sort of uh, Martin Luther King at the center of that. JFK, A New World Order, uh, which is an interesting sort of look, uh, uh, backwards look through history um, at his legacy, uh, you know, some 50-plus years after his uh, death and what that all sort of meant and how it shaped the next 50, 60 years now, actually. Um, um, uh, really, really interesting uh, sort of uh, perspective on JFK and what his... Uh, and what his work, uh, including his presidency, meant. And then, of course, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Trial by Fire, which explores his early life as well as an extremely insightful look at exactly what he was going through during that period, the by fire that they made of the Civil War, uh, right up, through his, uh, up to its assassination. Um, uh, power struggles between him and George McClellan, uh, just really, really interesting look at how he went about the process of writing the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, the, the Confederacy's last attack uh, on the North, uh, which just about brought it to its knees, which of course was to kill uh, the, the, the president. Uh, but it didn't, didn't quite work. Interesting, very, very powerful stuff. 20 hours of historical moments, some, some footage that I had not seen before, by, by the way. Mm. And then uh, three foreign films here, uh, two of them from Kino. I'm going to mention the one that's not part of Kino because it's a hoot. Bruce's Deadly Fingers, starring Bruce Lee. One E. Bruce Lee with one E. Bruce Le. <laughs> Bru is he a French Bruce? Bruce Le. Bruce Le. Bruce Lee. Lie, Bruce Lee. Anyway, uh, so after Bruce Lee died, uh, there was a void in uh, Hong Kong cinema, and so you wind up with what what they call Bruce exploitation movies, which are just movies with guys named Bruce, Bruce Le, Bruce Lowe, Bruce Lai, Bruce Lee, just anything Bruce to try to mm -hmm. capitalize on the mm -hmm. fact that you know uh, the guy's named Bruce. Yeah, he he can fight. Everyone knows <laughs> Bruce Lee is dead. It's ridiculous. Anyway, uh, uh, this is a silly movie. It's absolutely idiotic. Uh, it's just some guy. He's a decent fighter. You know, he looks a little bit like Bruce Lee, and uh, I look a little bit like Bruce Lee. <laughs> and he, uh, he's got to rescue his girlfriend from these guys who've taken her. It, it makes no sense. The plot's ridiculous. But what is worth looking at is uh, are the extras, which are fun. Extras are a lot of fun. They contextualize everything. Uh, they have uh, some deleted scenes with German dialogue of all things. Uh, there's commentary track by Michael Worth. 
who is an expert in the exploitation genre, and boy, does he have information I never even heard. And then uh, there are trailers, and there's a bad dubbing little bit in the extras. Uh, it, 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 a lot of fun stuff that just kind of has fun with this particular genre. And then on a more serious note, uh, the two Kino titles here. One is the King Who film Legend of the Mountain, which some people regard his masterpiece. I don't. I think it's a I think it's one of his weakest films, to be honest. But I am clearly in a minority. I just think his technique and his style uh, feels much more of the 70s than the 60s here. And uh, it, it's a cheaper film stock. It's not quite as vibrant in its camera work. And it's a little bit slower in its, in its plotting and its pacing from 1979. Um, you, you kind of feel it's getting dragged down a little bit. At least I do. Nonetheless, other people disagree. They think this is one of his great all-time films. It's a very uh, meditative story. It's about a, um, a scholar who um, is a Buddhist scholar looking for a sutra in the mountains and uh, winds up passing through kind of this mystical, ghostly uh, road trip and journey. And um, it gets a little, bit, a little bit psychedelic, a little bit funky in some respects. Um, I, you know, there's a lot to admire here, and uh, you know, don't take my word for it. Uh, check it out. Some people, the the the, the notes on the thing uh, say that they think it inspired Terrence Malick, which I would question. Has a video essay, a book essay, and an interview with the great Tony Raines, who knows this territory ter- territory well. And then the last one here is Andre Tarkovsky's The Sacrifice, oh. which won the Cannes Film Festival. In 1986, the same year that Mishima was there, the same year that uh, Alan Parker's Birdie won the runner-up prize. I remember all these movies very, very well. Yeah. And uh, Tarko- this was Tarkovsky's last film and his greatest triumph. When I first saw it, I thought it was the most boring thing I'd ever seen. It opens with a shot of a guy and a kid talking under a tree that's shot from like 800 meters away, and it goes on for about 27 minutes. It's unbelievably it's static. I thought it was so boring. I watched the film again, projected. Mm. I was in tears. Yeah. It's amazing how you watch it on television and then you watch it projected and it just changes. The whole dynamic. Uh, it changes everything. It is a very mystical film filled with magic and a witch and uh, the threat of nuclear annihilation in the background and uh, this aristocratic family uh, whose patriarch, uh, played by Erlen Josephson, the, the great Ingmar Bergman actor, um, uh, who's you know it, it it's just there's no way to sort of explain this it's really uh it, you know it's sort of futuristic you know it's got global war in the background but yet it's very it feels very 19th century and it has all has a witch and magic in it and then that great shot of the burning house which is kind of the the, the pinnacle of the film which they use for the the cover art it's just really it's it's a Tarkovsky film I don't know how else to to tell you. Uh, shot by Sven Nyqvist, of course, who did all the great Bergman films and pretty much all the great uh, Swedish films that anybody has ever done. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's powerful. Now, this is Tarkovsky as an expat working in Sweden uh, after he left uh, the USSR. Tons of great extras here. Uh, audio commentary by Leila Alexander-Garrett, who was uh, the translator on the set of The Sacrifice because Tarkovsky didn't speak Swedish. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Interview with his co-director Michal Lechlowski, Lechlowski, something I can't pronounce. Kazunkite. Thank you. And then uh, on disc two, 
there is the documentary directed by Andre Tarkovsky, which is all about the making of the film. And that's on DVD, not on Blu-ray. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Solaris man myself. I love Solaris. Yeah, yeah, that's I good. do. That's, that's good. Yeah. Uh, and also, didn't he do a version of, not the seagull, but perhaps some Chekhov. He did some Chekhov. Uncle Vanya. I think he no, did. No, he didn't do a Vanya. He didn't do a Vanya? I, yeah, I know what film you're thinking of. And I Konchalovsky. Konchalovsky did Vanya. Did the Vanya. Thank you. Yeah. That's right. Um, uh, I have here in my hand an interesting sort of comprehensive three documentary series about World War II. The first one, The War in Pacific, in the Pacific is a, really just an amazing film uh, that chronicles most of the events that led up to the bombing of the naval base at Pearl Harbor in 1941, and then uh, the various different land, air, and sea battles, a lot of sea ba ba uh, battles um, uh, that unfolded through 1942 all the way up until the fall of Japan in you know, 1945, obviously, yep. after the bombing. So that's a really, really sort of interesting um, uh, aggregation of all of that information regarding everything that happened in, in the Pacific from uh, the moment of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Um, American Heritage, uh, D-Day, the invasion, March to Victory. This is a three-part series. Um, uh, that, uh, just that, uh, and, you know, after all those sort of years of struggle uh, there, takes a look at the whole uh, VE Day uh, a moment uh, in history and exactly how we pulled it off. Uh, you talked about it before. There was the land battle and then yep. the sea battle and the march up from the south and all of that. Uh, Fright for Freedom is a 10-part series which covers all of the major battles of World War II, relatively speaking, all of the major battles of World War II with all kinds of new footage, uh, found footage, uh, and, and, uh, letters uh, from soldiers at each one of the battles, an absolutely extraordinary 10-part series, The Fight for Freedom. Um, good stuff, man. Mill Creek. All right. And with that, we are done for this week, and we will see you guys next week.